This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action, with host Arman Shraki. Each week, Arman will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS Scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's q r v e y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. Um, I'm so pleased to have um, Tim Wimay with me, and he's from Engage3. Um, fascinating story. Um, we had a discussion just before this recording, and I hope that you enjoy the discussion as much as I do. It will be a casual discussion, like always. Um, naturally, organically, we just sit down and talk about different topics that we believe it will interest other colleagues at other software companies. And uh, of course, uh, after it's posted, uh, you're more than welcome to, you know, leave comments, any questions you might have for either of us, and uh, and we enjoy always receiving comments and uh, questions from you. So with that uh, quick uh, introduction, uh, Tim, I would like to welcome you and ask you to tell us a little bit about, you know, the story behind, uh, you know, what you guys do and how you started and tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, again, uh, I had the pleasure to to listen to that story. I think everyone would enjoy if you share with us uh, a little bit of that. Thank you, Arman. Sure, I'd love to. Um, yeah, I, I was um, uh, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Watched my parents uh, create a company, and that that was a company that uh, provided competitive pricing data to the retail industry. So, if a retailer wanted to know what their competitor down the street charged. Um, my family business would send people into the stores to collect the pricing data. So from seven years old in the early 70s, I was collecting pricing data, uh, and that, that was my job. And uh, so uh, I, I got to know retail from that point forward um, and got to see the, uh, the inflationary uh, times of the 70s, and that, that really... Uh, um, I got to see what it was for a service company to scale at that time. That was before computers and uh, any any technology, so it was all pen and paper at that point. Um, and um, my brother and I both vowed we didn't want to get involved with the company because we saw how brutally tough it was to scale a service company. Um, that said, I went my own way and started a business out of high school, and um, it was uh, I was happily growing a, a B2C service company. Um, doing about half a million in ARR margins were, um, growing customer acquisition, uh, costs were dropping, client retention was, uh, near a hundred percent and revenue retention, retention was over a hundred percent. Um, I'd grown it to uh, a, a large company in my market space and, um, uh, had four employees all paid above market. Uh, I did two small M&A deals, and uh, I felt good. I loved evolving the business model, 
And uh, I knew I was providing the best service I possibly could to my clients. That felt really good. And um, my company grew by over 100% six years in a row. Um, and that's when my brother called. And he was uh, pursuing a PhD in uh, theoretical physics, chemical engineering at UCSB. And he said he had an idea that related back to the family business. And this is at a time when there was a new data foundation emerging in retail. Uh, it what used to be that manufacturers held power and they told the retailer what to do. But with the, um, with the introduction of the UPC code with point of sale systems and uh, what had just developed was uh, data warehousing. So retailers now had an ability to hold on to this very valuable sales data in a time series. And um, so he called me very excited about uh, applying a lot of the um, quantitative methods he was learning and, and experimenting with to the retail data that um, the data that retailers had. And so immediately the idea took me and um, <laughs> I apologize to tell a story you've probably heard too often, but we sat down at a coffee shop and he wrote a formula on a napkin and handed me the napkin and said, here's an idea. I, it's worth a hundred million dollars. I only want half. And um, so we were off, uh, you know, we took it seriously and started exploring the idea. Um, pretty much everyone told us we couldn't do it. Um, you know, one retailer who uh, actually understood what the op word optimization meant um, said, uh, the first thing I teach all my bright young MBAs is to forget all that, that BS you learn in Economics 101. This is retail. It doesn't work here. Um, but we were too young and dumb to know that it couldn't be done. And so we did it anyway, and we... And when you say, when you say, sorry, when you say it, it, it was difficult or hard to do or impossible to do, you are referring to the complexity and the fact that data is not even comparable in most cases, right? So that's the, that's the challenging part of this task. Yeah, there was, there was so many challenges. One, just getting retailers to give us the data to, um, to innovate. You know, we didn't have a product yet. And we needed their data in order to create the, to go through the innovation steps to create a solution. And so we really needed to partner with someone who uh, was going to give us some of this very proprietary data. And, um, and so it took us three years just calling and calling different retailers until finally we found one that was willing to share some data with us. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that's when we ran straight into a brick wall, which was we found out why a lot of the experts in the field said it couldn't be done. The first model we, we came up with, we uh, optimized prices and uh, for like a six pack of Coke that might have sold for $1.50 at the time, it was recommending $8 for as an optimum price. And we only knew one thing, that was the wrong price. Uh, you know, it, it was definitely not optimal. But then Later, it occurred to us that it really was optimal. It's optimal if you want to go out of business tomorrow. Short term, it's optimal. <laughs> you could probably get $8 a six-pack from a few shoppers and make a lot of money, but you're not going to be in business long. So we realized that in order to help companies, the, the challenge that we were, um, we had to frame the problem in a different perspective. And everyone who'd approached it before came from the manufacturer's perspective. 
that's really all, where all the research, the R&D had come from. Universities were paid by manufacturers to do research on this data. And they pretty much all said it raises prices. And, um, and so we came along and because we'd grown up in retail, we were able to adopt a retailer's perspective. And that was really the shift that made the difference. Um, yeah, taking the, the perspective of a different, um, market participant and, um, and recognizing that we had to optimize against a time scale as opposed to tomorrow. And those two innovations were, were really, uh, what allowed us to crack the nut on it and be able to produce what retailers considered implementable prices, meaning they could implement the price recommendations without review. And one of our first clients was buy.com. So, um, that this, and that was, uh, you know, so it was fully automated, the, the pricing there and, and we saw great results. Um, typically what, what we would be able to do is help a company lower its prices while simultaneously, simultaneously increasing profit. And it's an interesting trick, um, cause usually it's one or the other, but what we found is that. Um, by looking at the, the sales data, we could understand better what the shopper wanted. And by understanding, you know, retailers often operate on a loss leader strategy. They give a low price on one item to bring people into the store and then charge a marginally higher price on other items to offset what they gave away on the, on the, uh, loss leader. And if you get that wrong, you're wasting margins because you're giving shoppers low prices on items um, where they don't recognize the low price. And those are margins that could have been allocated to uh, a product that shoppers really did care about. And when you get that right, what you see happen is that the multiples, uh, you know, people buy two or three of an item instead. So all of a sudden, um, that's where it becomes uh, more profitable uh, because now you're really driving sales uh, and it, it helps um, you're using price and incentives to help align the or the client or the retailer in this case with the market. So it's when you get them the two aligned, that's where efficiency happens, and that's why you're able to increase sales, increase trips uh, to the store, and increase profit. It's better. It's a win for both. So that pricing intelligence that you bring to these, you know, companies that essentially being smart about the pricing and set the right price so they can, essentially it's more about optimization, right? For, from the many different aspects. Um, when you do that today, is it fair to, to, to say that most of the, most of it is just algorithmic at this point and, and, and it's not like a lot of manual things that you have to do or still it's a hybrid model that you have to run algorithms, but also you have to add the, human intelligence involved and just build that kind of as a hybrid model. Yeah, it's really a combination of both. It's the art and science of, of pricing. And, uh, um, and that comes through really in two areas pretty uh, significantly. One is in managing the data. So it's really a knife fight. It's often the process starts with competitive pricing data. And you know, no competitor in the world wants to be compared, easily compared with their competition. So the first thing you find is that you can collect competitive data, but it's not easily comparable. Um, 
and an easy example would just be one private label to another. One's one size, another one's slightly offset size. One has, um, you know, so it, it different names, different sizes, different UPCs. It's not easy to compare. Um, and then you you look at this across the millions of products in the marketplace, and you say, wow, that's a big job to try and make all of that comparable when there's new products entering at a faster rate than ever before and um and inflation size size inflation all these things are happening so there's changes everywhere a upc is not a is not a comparable unit when when you have sizes changing so you are essentially maintaining a big data about data so those kind of metadata definitions that you have to maintain and make them very comprehensive makes your engine smarter and the, yeah. the more comprehensive the better definitions the more dimensions attributes you define all of those logic that you define behind the scene and over time you have to maintain it and the bigger it is the more maintenance probably and the you know the the, the you have to maintain all of this data that you have now That's but right. it, it has exactly the value that now you have something valuable that is not super easy to you know, just build from scratch overnight. You know, that's not the wild. Yeah, especially when you've you've curated it over time, and it's it's a balancing the you use algorithms and AI and machine learning to get you to the right answer, and then you use hu human uh, intuition to review and approve, and so it's a process like that, and then. And then you put a learning algorithm on top of that. So when a human does go in and layer on a different perspective, you're using that as part of the feedback loop so that it's iteratively getting better over time. So on a, a slightly different topic, the name is Engage 3. So where does that name come from and where does that 3 at the end come from? Yeah, the, the, our first company was called Kinemetrics and we sold that in 2006 and, and we were effectively, uh, we're primarily focused on providing a solution for retailers, but we realized that there's actually a lot of conflict between retailers and manufacturers that there's contention over what they call trade funds, which is how much money a, a manufacturer is going to, um, allocate to a, to a promotion in order to effectively buy down the retail price and increase volumes. Um, and so, um, that contention and the, the fact that power is shifting to the shopper, we said what we need to do is align the retailer and the manufacturer uh, through um, one pricing algorithm, that one incentive mechanism that where it can align their interests towards mutual interests of serving the shopper. So Engage 3 uh, was engaging with the shopper, a retailer, and a manufacturer in a, a mutual interaction. And that, that's the, the vision that started the company. And we, we would say, if we were to rename it today, it might be Engage 4 or 5 because there's more than just the retailer, the, the brand, and the shopper. You could include healthcare. You could include, you know, the list can go on about other people who have an interest in incentivizing sales along the way. Interesting point. Um, now, uh, we had that discussion before, and uh, you you raised a very interesting point. You just mentioned healthcare as one of the parameters. Can you a little bit expand upon that? Because I, I, I think that's a really interesting point for everyone to know. It may not be necessarily, you know, a software discussion. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting topic. I think it's important to follow paradigm shifts. And one of the things that, you know, we all can see the smartphone out there is a, is a massive element of a paradigm shift. We have online, you know, retailers making their assortments and pricing available online. So that's a, a massive um, influencer of a paradigm shift. And then one that's not so obvious is the healthcare. And that is that um, for every dollar that's spent on food, for the 50% of Americans uh, and or beyond that that have a chronic health issue that's food mediated, there's uh, for every dollar that's spent on food and beverage, there's six dollars spent on healthcare for disease conditions that can be food mediated. So there's a lot of potential um, interest. In, in that that pool of money to incentivize healthier options in retail. And uh, the one size fits all that tends to, you know, top down approach, which is we'll just give everyone a voucher for fresh vegetables. It doesn't seem to work so well. And it's not, it doesn't have the scale that's needed to really drive behavior change in retail. And so that that's where there's another constituent out there who could actually reshape the entire industry if they were to participate in incentivizing um, healthier choices in retail. And the, the cool thing about it is it becomes a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Right now, the entire industry is kind of funded. Um, you know, most investors like predictability. So if you look at bringing a new food product to market, uh, investors want to know that it's going to be predictable. And if you're coming up with a net new product that's, you know, maybe a, a health option that people have never had before, um, mostly investors are going to shy away from that because it's not as predictable as a high volume, low cost product. Those things tend to do very well. And so the whole industry is kind of engineered around introducing new high volume, low cost products. Uh, however, often those don't have the health attributes. Um, that other products would have. And so what we begin to align on, if we can align these interests, is a flow of money that supports a race to the top, which means how can we align, better align industries, innovation industries, scale, uh, and um, in a mutual exchange that, that aligns all this towards the shopper's needs and preferences so that the shopper gets healthier food for less. Um, based on what you said and based on your background, we can, I can think of a lot of questions and different directions to go from entrepreneurship, you know, a start leading your business to really talking about, you know, the, the way you see it, that businesses can be optimized from the analytic perspective and the way you, you know, have seen that, uh, it can scale in one direction or the other if the data and analytic scalability. So there are many different directions to go, but I want to ask you one question first, and that is, uh, you mentioned when you started the company at that time, you know, and we all have done it, I'm entrepreneur and serial entrepreneur too. So there is a level of craziness to really start a business from nothing because you have to really start everything from on the ground. And that's a lot of work. Would you do it again if you, we're out of this company and say, now I took a vacation and I'm back and I'm bored. Would you do it again and say, let's go start a company again from scratch? When we sold our last company, uh, Kymetrics, 
I said I would never start another B2B company because the sales cycles were so brutal and and um and and all and I thought I would want to do a B2C company. But you know, fast forward <laughs> a few years and we were right back in the same game. So um it it it's really attractive. Um and um to me it the the fun part comes when you get to manifest a vision and um and you feel like you know i after we sold the company i i was um spending time going to coffee shops and not really having a, a strong direction in life and i'd come home and my wife would ask me did you have a good day and i didn't really know <laughs> quite how to answer that question um and and so it was having a company that uh can occupy kind of a long-term focus was something that i really um i really enjoy that process um, yeah I, I, yeah so th this is really more about building something and then you have built it it's it mm -hmm. never existed before and you feel like you know if you were if if you were not taking action to start it it wouldn't have never have existed now it exists it does something serves a purpose that's fantastic and that's as you say that's the drive i think for most entrepreneurs to get involved and even if they have done it and they say the same thing never ever i'm going to do it again they will forget it they will come back and say let's do it again this is really great so um in your work there are a lot of things about data analytics and many SaaS companies many software companies nowadays data is at the core of their business. They are directly or indirectly working with data. They are directly or indirectly working with analytics. They are creating value out of that data for the customers that they have, and that's sometimes even the product itself. Well, now, um, there was a report recently, at Stanford actually uh, published very recently, that, you know, looking at the data, it shows the uh, not just the AI aspect but also it shows that this is the growth of AI, everything is about artificial intelligence, but also it shows you that what is the um, carbon footprint for creating this intelligence? You know, we are living in a world that when we do this computation, when we really compute something, write these algorithms, run them, behind the scene, there are a lot of things going on. There are servers running, there are, you know, if you are using, for example, AWS, they are adding servers every day, maybe thousands of them. And then in order to address the increasing need for data processing, analytics, um, and, you know, what is the impact of that on the environment, especially the older technologies that majority of servers and computing today is running on servers and nodes that have to be running even if you are using them one hour a day you are still running that 24 hours a day uh, now with these new technologies microservices serverless that will be the future we are hoping that that will be more optimized faster to scale sharing the resources not keeping this all all the time even if you are not using it but how do you see those kind of you know things can uh, impact businesses. How did you experience firsthand that this is really where we got to the point that cost was too much from the analysis, from the data perspective, or maybe data was not, but scalability performance became an issue. And you had to come up with some kind of ideas to address those one way or the other and yeah. overall perspective. Right. Right. 
So a few, a few things come to mind as I hear your question. Um, you know, one of the first areas of scalability we ran into when we were early in the, the life cycle of the first company, um, th there was a few that we ran into that really speak to what you're talking about. One, um, database scalability. Yeah, we were trying to move massive amounts of data. When you're talking about retailer point of sale data and you're trying to move that into a database on a daily basis for a large retailer, not only one, but many large retailers, you're, you're doing a lot of, that's a lot of computation. Better to share that data in a different way, but um, that's a lot of data to move. And then when you're trying to do, build out arrays of that data, um, and you're looking at, you know, okay, let's look over two years worth of time, f 500 products, all of the sales data. That's a massive array just for one category. And if you don't approach it intelligently, you're going to burn through a, a lot of computational power, just like you said. So now you're, you're also talking about not only database scalability, but algorithm scalability. And so we had to, because in the early days, we didn't have these massive platforms. Yeah, you would buy like um, uh, a machine from IBM and that's what you had to work with. It had to work within the confines of that. So we had to be a little, you know, this is where I love capitalism and a pricing mechanism, right? Because the cost of your time, your resources, your energy and, and all forced us to say, look at the algorithms and not be wasteful with it, you know? And so you could take, say, an... Um, a uh, artificial intelligence uh, kind of um, a, th there's different ways of approaching it. Um, some just totally burn through the, the the processing speed. For the database engine, what we actually found was we didn't need the overhead of a uh, like a um, a data warehouse that was built for saving point of sale data at the time. And there was a number of popular brands. We built uh, our own database at a binary level we built a relational database system that operated at the binary level because what we were doing was so specific. It's a price, it's a date, it's a quantity. Um, and so from that level, it was easy to convert that into a relational binary system, then have that go through, and then, then it became algorithm scalability. And how quickly can you get the optimization to run? Now, in our, the technical term that for what we're doing is we're looking for a global optimum which means that usually you've got some time series and you're trying, or, you know, some range of top to bottom and you're trying to find the point that is going to yield the highest return. And, um, and so you have to search that entire space. And if you're using a brute force method, which, uh, or, or, um, a neural net type of method, it could take days, weeks, years to solve, solve the problem. But if you customize the, the algorithm again for what you're doing and say, okay, we know, we know exactly what we want to optimize for here and what the, the boundaries are, and you design the algorithm to work within that space and for the types of data that you're, you're, you're seeing, we were able to get algorithms to run in seconds that were, you know, we could optimize uh, for a 2000 store chain and all prices all across all stores within about three hours. And that's what it took our nearest competitor um, a week to, to run uh, an optimization for just a few categories of stores mm -hmm. on the same relative computing platform. So 
that's the difference between scale and that's the difference between the carbon footprint you're talking about. Um, you know, are we just th throwing out of the box algorithms uh, at, at it and saying, let that do it? Or are we actually going to say, what exactly do we need to throw at this? And I think uh, if, if we have honest pricing of cost and things like the yeah, energy, things like that, uh, price, when it's transparent, is a great mediator of demand. And, and also, it's what entrepreneurs can innovate against. Do you see a future, a near future, meaning in the next five, 10 years, that uh, it will be less challenging for, for example, um, getting this information that may be so hard to get it? I mean, you have some memories from the time that you were in your childhood you know, in a very manual style, you were asking or you were seeking this kind of pricing information. And now you see it in a different age with cloud, everything, the data that we have and, you know, all of the speed that you can ask. And then I'm asking, how do you see it's emerging and in the next five, 10 years, or do you think that, you know, the pricing will, it's just the nature of the, the way it works. And, you know, this is the best you can ask for. And there is no other reason to think that it will be so easy, much easier, API-driven. You can call this API, get the pricing of everything 10 years from now. And there is no kind of middle, maybe, you know, middle mind between. And most of this will be very direct from different companies. Web3 is going to change it. So uh, I don't know, maybe at least digital kind of products will change first before, you know, other products will change. But do you see some of these movements that may actually, you know, lead us to a different place from pricing intelligence that you are talking about and getting the data? Yeah, I do. I do see um, both uh, more mutuality coming into it and uh, competition remaining that make it difficult. So I see both. And uh, from a mutual perspective, I think the shop power is shifting to the shopper. There's no doubt about that. And so as that happens. It, that's a great rallying cry to align mutual interests across ecosystems in order to serve the shopper. As that alignment happens, we see more da data sharing, more API strategies, and, and it's, it, it's companies are more willing to work together, sharing data uh, in order to uh, su support the shopper. So I see that happening. Um, and, and with that, the, you know, data takes a while to mature. So uh, when point of sale data first came out, it wasn't the same across, you know, not everybody stored it the same way. There was differences. There was differences between stores and systems and this and that, the other thing. So it's, and it's come a long way towards maturing. And I see the same thing happening with all the da new data that's available today. It takes a while to mature. And, um, and I think that, that, um, while we have this mutuality of interests towards serving the shopper that, that aligns uh, everyone to work together and share data and make it better, um, there's also competition, which uh, the beautiful part about competition is it's, it's a fight of, you know, if you, um, it, it helps uh, everyone stay sharp and, 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 and innovate uh, more quickly. So that's a, that's a beautiful thing. What happens as well, so you've got competition, which, creates a challenge. Nobody wants their product to be compared to the easily compared to the competition. And so there's always a struggle to differentiate, you know, it sales one, one differentiate or die. And, um, and that happens, uh, in, in our world, um, in a massive scale. 
and so it's a it's a cat and cat and mouse game to make things comparable when everyone's trying to differentiate. So that I think will will only persist and and get worse and uh, not worse, but you know it's gonna that's how companies gonna the companies will get better at differentiating and serving the shopper. Um, and then I think one final point is that science is evolving. And so if we just look at nutrition as an example, we have the nutrient. And, um, you know, we know that the, uh, um, the, the nutrients in the food matter. And now they're finding that, that you know, if you ask a sci- food scientist about protein, they'll say, well, which one? There's like over 100 different types of protein. Some are good, some are bad. So I think we're going to get to a level where the, the, the amount of data about data exponentially increases and we're which is going to create new problems for uh this comparability that and that you just mentioned so i think we have three things the the evolution of of life and science the competition and then the mutuality are all um elements that will continue to go faster Uh, the other trend that i personally have observed and i'm not expert in that you are um well, you know, more suited, more suited to really understand that aspect very well. And that's about variable pricing. Of course, airlines, you see they have the variable pricing. And they're one of the first businesses that came up with this kind of idea that our price should not be fixed. And depending on, you know, the seasonality or popularity or timing and you know, if the flight is already 50% booked or not, then the price should be different. Now, I have seen actually even in some restaurants that sometimes the menu items, not a lot, but I have seen in some places that the menu items can change the price mm-hmm. because of the timing, because of the day, and then they give you the variable discount and coupons that essentially it's more like variable pricing, even if the prices stayed the same, but the discount can change it from media. So so you see that this variable pricing is getting more into different kind of places. And I think um, that that can drive demand, right? So the, the, the whole idea is of if I have the right time, the right pricing for the right time, for the right audience, then I can optimize my revenue and I can get more. Uh, do, do you see that in more kind of become warm in more industries, not just airlines, but even in a restaurant and other services, they think about that kind of, I, 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 of course we see it in Uber and Lyft and these kind of services too, but uh, do you see it to be more often available now? And the trend that you see is more geared us toward that kind of world that the price is going to be variable all the time for everywhere we go. Yeah, I do think we're, we're driving towards that at light speed um really what for me what comes to mind is agent-based shopping you know with that we are entering an age where agents can do all of our shopping for us that's a much different world than we live in today but um done right all the variable pricing is really segmenting your market and it's best when when customers self-segment themselves right come in for happy hour and get a lower price that's an example of self-segmentation that we have a lower price. You know, um, when capacity is low, we want to increase volume to offset the margins. It's it's a good business decision, and if it's self-segmentation, that's great because the customer understands it and does it to themselves. 
Um, so I think that's done well, done wrong at Ruins Trust. When um, there were some companies years ago that were experimenting, you know, we'll give this, this shopper one price and give this one another. And shoppers would find out about it and get upset. You know, it was confusing and it, it didn't make sense. And I think that's an example when it's not done well. The future we're going into is, I think, machine to machine. And when machines can go do price discovery, prices are transparent and they can do discovery faster than, it, you know, at light speed. Um, now you've got a different game that you're playing. And now is when it's really important to understand what a shopper values. Because even, I mentioned Buy.com was a client early on. And retailers at that time had the belief you had to win the buy box. You had to be number one on the lowest price on the buy box in order to get the sale. And what we saw was that their brand had value. And so it took a while to work with them and help them understand they didn't always have to win and be number one on the buy box to win the sale. And what they found was it was true, you know, especially if somebody's building a basket, like they're getting multiple products. They're, if you understand your value proposition to the shopper and the shopper understands what you do that's valuable, you've got some mutuality there that that's um, you know, you can charge for that. And as long as you're not, you know, the shop shopper understands it and um, it's, it's, they kind of know roughly where you're at. Yeah. Maybe I know I can get a cheaper deal somewhere else, but I like all the other values I get from you. So I'm willing to pay a little bit more Then um, then it's, it's fair and acceptable. And I think that that's uh, the future we're driving into, even though it'll be machine to machine, um, I think that brand still counts and uh, brand value won't go to zero. Okay, fantastic. Um, now, uh, I would like to ask you if uh, you would uh, please recommend uh, a book to our audience that you think you liked it. It can be about what you do professionally or just a book that you liked. It has positive impact, has had positive impact in what you do. So, um, yeah, it's funny when, when you first asked that question, you told me you were going to ask that question. I thought of Zig Ziglar's, uh, book on sales. Cause I, I'm early on in my career. I read those two or three times, maybe, maybe even more. Uh, I really got a lot out of those. And then, but more recently I've been reading a book by Don Beck about spiral dynamics and kind of a funky name, but the, the whole, I, it's really an idea of how we as people become more um, um, how we mature over time. And to me, it gives me a lot of insight into um, how, um, how we can all work better together and, and um, how we can um, evolve our interactions and our, our organizations. And so to me, that's a special book. Thank you very much, Tim. It was a great discussion and uh, definitely I enjoyed it. Uh, in the previous one as well as during the session here and uh, I will follow your company and uh, what you do and uh, we will reconnect for sure in the future. Uh, good luck to you. Thank you, Armin. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. 
Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.